We are continuing today in our sermon series on Romans, and you may have noticed the scripture reading was rather short this morning. That's because there's a whole lot packed into those three verses, so we're going to try to unpack them this morning, and uh, I'm looking forward to presenting God's word to do today. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, your word is living and active. We thank you that by your spirit, you bring conviction, you bring truth, you bring light. And so, Father, for us, your children who open uh, your word today, I pray, Father, that you would give us understanding to one of the deepest mysteries in your word, how you are sovereign, and yet in your sovereignty, you have given us free will to either choose you or to reject you. And yet, Lord, there is a tension within this word for us at, at how you do all of this, how you bring even further all things together for the good of those who love you in such a broken and sin-filled world. And yet, Lord, again, we come to you and we seek and we ask for understanding. And we ask most of all that we would leave today feeling encouraged and, and simply in, in awe and wonder of your glory, your majesty, and your wisdom. Thank you most of all that in your mercy and love you have chosen us to be your children. And so in this, we, we glory today. And so, Father, speak through this word. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we begin today's study with verse 28, our call to worship, which is one of the most precious promises of God in all of Scripture. It states, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Who here has memorized that verse at some point in their life? Okay, if there's any hands that haven't gone up, have your hand up by the end of the day, because this is one of those verses that you should have memorized. Take it to heart. This is a promise of God for you. Now, this verse is such a precious promise for the saints through all the ages of church history that it's been described as the soft pillow upon which a road-weary pilgrim can rest his head, even on the darkest of nights. This verse describes God's providence and how he providentially cares for his children. Now, as we think about God's providence and the word providence, we we come across it quite often. We have a providence seminary in the province of Manitoba. We we have uh, a providence, I think it's a city out in the uh, uh, East Coast, United States. We use this word providence all the time, but what exactly does it mean? Well, it's derived from a Greek word, which when you break it down, pro means before. So pro, uh, I think most of us are familiar with that term with other words, like a prototype, talking about something that comes first, pro. And then the second part of the word, videnze, comes from the same word that we use for video. So video, like a video camera, is talking about something with which we see. So when you put them together, the definition of the word providence is to see before. So beforehand, you are seeing something. It's like you're, you're seeing something before it has yet come to pass. Now, when we talk about God's providence, what we mean by this is that God can providentially see before and then make his plans accordingly. Now, this, of course doesn't mean that we are somehow puppets on God's string or actors on a stage. 
He has still given us free will, and so we still make free decisions and are therefore responsible to bear the consequences of those decisions. Cause and effect still work in God's universe. However, in all of this, God is so creative, so wise, and so powerful that he can weave together all of those countless decisions, both good and bad, of millions upon billions of people who have lived through the centuries, and he can still weave them together in such a way as to create the masterpiece that he desires in accordance with his will, with his plan, and to bring about all things for the good of those who love him. Now, if that seems like a bit of a mouthful to you, it does to me, because this is one of the greatest mysteries of God. Now, I've shared with you before how a number of years ago, I had to have my wisdom teeth removed. They were badly impacted. They, they had to be cut out by operation, by surgery. And so, um, if any of you have had any dental work before, you know that it doesn't come cheap right? Dental work, basically it's get ready to pull out the checkbook and write down a big, big figure and um, dental operations especially so. And so thankfully, as I was considering, you know, why I'd been putting off getting this, this operation to have my wisdom teeth removed, I had some health insurance coverage that covered the majority of the operation. And so I thought, well, now I, I should take advantage of that. I'll just bite the bullet, get it over with, get them cut out, and I'm done with it. And so when my pre-op came along, I was given the choice of either being given a local anesthetic to just freeze the area, have the teeth removed that way, or the choice of being put completely under that I would fall asleep, the operation would happen without my awareness, and I'd wake up sometime later and it would all be done with. And so I figured, well, I'm not a big fan of needles and cutting and tugging and pain in general. So I thought, well, if I'm given the choice, I will just choose being put to sleep and waking up when it's all over. That seems the easiest option for me. So that's what I decided on. However, when the operation day came and I arrived at the dental clinic in Brandon for the operation, I was informed by the receptionist that my surgery could not take place that day because the anesthesiologist... So that's the big term for the physician who's in charge of putting me under and monitoring everything. The anesiologist had not arrived for work that day. And no one could get a hold of him. No one knew where he was. No, no one could figure it out. Now, at this point, believe it or not, I'm actually disappointed. Because I had psyched myself up. Today was the day I was going to get this over with and, and just done and in the rearview mirror. And now here I am thinking, now I've got to drive home, reschedule it, go through all of this again. And so I'm, I'm sitting in the waiting room thinking about all of this. And I just said a simple prayer. Lord, if there's any way this operation can happen today, please just, just make it happen. So I said, amen. I sat there and then very quickly the receptionist says, the, the dentist would like to talk to you. So I go into the office. He's very apologetic. And, and he just told me that, I'm, I'm so sorry I can't do your operation today. I've been doing this job for 20 years, and this is the very first time I've had an anesthesiologist fail to show up for work. Never happened in 20 years. After he said this, a, a thought suddenly popped into my mind, and I asked, wait a minute, if you didn't put me under and you just used a local anesthetic, could you do the operation? And his immediate reply was, well, then I could do the operation right now. Well then, let's do it, I said. And so, from there, everything went like clockwork. Smoothly, the operation was done. And, and after the teeth are removed, 
and I'm settling everything up with the receptionist, she says to me, Sorry again about earlier, but after processing your insurance, I noticed that the local anesthetic is covered. However, being put under is not. So if the anesthesiologist had showed up for work today and you'd been put under like you'd been planned, you would have had to pay $1,200 for that. So here I am thinking about all of this. If a guy had showed up, I would have been on the hook for $1,200 that I wasn't aware of. Now, some people will call that luck. Others will call that coincidence. But by my faith, I believe that this is just another example of many examples in my life where God's providential care was at work, being fulfilled this promise that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, I'm not going to say that being saved $1,200 is the end-all, be-all of God's providence. In fact, it's a very small thing in the grand scheme of life. But notice the verse says, in all things. All things means all. It means big and small and, and everything in between. God is at work. And I suspect that this morning, even as I've shared this story with you, if I were to ask you, when have you seen God's providence at work in your life? Can you think of times and situations where just things worked out coincidentally in such a way that you just have to marvel and say, who else but God could have orchestrated something like that? And I suspect if we took the time, we could spend the rest of today sharing stories just like that. By faith, we know it's not luck. We know it's not coincidence. It is God's providence at work. Now, as we think about this, we, we know it's true. By faith, we believe it. And Paul gives us a few more aspects that I'd like to dive into for you about God's providence. The first is this. God's providential promise towards us is certain. The promise is certain. Paul simply states at the beginning of this verse, and we know, and we know. In this statement, there's no room for doubt or hedging one's bets. You know, Paul could have just as easily written, and we hope that in all things, or and we think that in all things, but he, he says with certainty, and we know. And this is in complete harmony with Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, which gives this statement a definition on faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So while God's providential hand remains unseen to our physical eyes, through the eyes of faith, we can be sure of what we hope for and so certain of what we cannot yet see that we can stake our very lives and our souls upon it being true. So the promise is certain. The second thing that Paul would point out to us is that the promise applies in both good and bad circumstances. Both good and bad. Paul uses these words to describe them. He says, in all things. In all things. Just as in my earlier story about my wisdom teeth, the circumstances to me at first seemed bad. It actually seemed like something that I didn't want. But then it turned around to be for my good. And so God brought about something good that at first glance appeared to be bad. Now, I'd say that most times it doesn't happen quite that quickly or neatly that within an hour or less you've kind of seen things go a complete 180. Sometimes it happens that quickly, not always, and, and sometimes with bigger things it can take even years 
to see how God was working about something good through something that seemed only bad. And even further, by faith, we must surrender that some of the good we will not see in this life. It will only be in glory that we will see the full good that God is working about through a bad and even sometimes tragic situation. And yet through faith, we can be so sure of it that in all things, even the most painful, bitter, or cruel events in our lives, God's promise remains true that he is somehow using it to bring about our ultimate good. And so therefore, we have a faith that can cover every single event that this life can throw our way. Thirdly, Paul would bring to our attention that this promise brings order out of chaos. Order out of chaos. I like how the New King James Version uh, states this part of the verse. It says, And all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things work together for the good. Now, all things working together means that under God's providence, there is a cooperation in life's events. There is a, a certain cohesion in life's events. Now, to us, as life is coming our way and things are being thrown our way, so often the events seem completely chaotic, as though there is no rhyme or reason to anything, and it's just, it's just chaos, and it's random, and where in, the, you know, where in the world did this come from? It just came right out of left field. We have sayings like that, where these things just come our way completely unexpectedly. But if we go back all the way to the beginning... Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we read this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so here we see this picture that at the very, very beginning, we have this picture of emptiness, of darkness, and of a certain level of chaos. Nothing is in order. It says there's, there's just this void and God's spirit is, is hovering, brooding over this mess, thinking, how am I going to bring order? How am I going to bring light and life to this, to this darkness? And so we see the rest of the chapter one proceed of how God masterfully does that. And he brings order out of the chaos. He says, let there be light. And he dispels the darkness. And he goes on to create his masterpiece and sets at the pinnacle man who he has made in his own image and this is exactly the same incredible ability that God uses in our lives to now bring order from the chaos to bring light from the darkness to bring about something grand from what we would see as only chaos and pain and, and something completely random even in that God's hand is there there's a true story told of the 18th century poet named William Cowper. And he was subject to fits of very deep depression. One evening, in, in a state of deep despair, he ordered a cab and he asked to be driven to the London Bridge. However, on their way to the bridge, a dense fog settled down upon the city and the cabbie lost his way. This was one of those fogs so thick you could hardly see your hand in front of your face. And so this cabbie driver who had spent his entire life in the city of London, even he could not find his way in this thick fog. And so they slowly proceeded to wander about for two hours until finally the cabbie, much to his embarrassment, had to admit to Cowper, we are helplessly lost. I have no idea where we are. 
And so Cowper thought about that for just a moment, and then he finally asked the cabbie, well, do you think that you could just find your way back home to, to drop me off back where we started? And the cabbie said, well, I will try. And so it took them about another hour, but finally the cabbie made his way back through the dense fog and dropped Cowper off at his door. There, Cowper was preparing to pay the cabbie for their, their time together, but he insisted that, no, I did not bring you to your destination. No payment is necessary. But to this, Cowper then replied, No, I will pay you, because you see, tonight you have saved my life. For you see, I was on my way to go and throw myself off of the London Bridge. And with that, he gave the cabbie double his usual fare. He then went into his house and proceeded to write the hymn, which includes the lines, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Isn't that so true? God works in mysterious ways. He can use a dense fog. He can use a, an anesiologist not showing up for work. He can use anything to accomplish his will and to bring about good for his children. In this, we see God's providential promise, bringing good out of bad, light out of darkness, order out of chaos. But now we come to a fourth principle of God's providence that, that Paul would have us know, and it's a surprising one. And that is, the promise is not for everyone. Are you surprised by that statement? The promise is not for everyone. Now, how can that be? Isn't God, you know, inclusive? Isn't his love for everyone? Well, well, yes, yes it is. His love is for everyone, but this promise is not because this promise is exclusive. Look at what the verse says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of who? This is the exclusive part. He works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And so, here we see that up till this point, the emphasis has been on God's side of the promise. But this is now the human side. And it has to do directly with our attitude and our relationship towards God. Because you see, Paul does not say that this promise is for those who hate God. He does not say this promise is for those who are indifferent towards God or even for those who really like God. This promise is exclusively for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, many people glibly assume that so long as God loves the world and, and God loves them, then his providential blessings will just keep flowing on their lives no matter what, regardless of whether or not they return love to him. But Paul is saying that is simply not true. For this promise is based not upon God's love towards us, but upon our love towards him. Therefore, to be able to claim this promise as our own, here is the prerequisite. You and I must love God. That's it. We must love God. For as Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest commandment, to love God with all you've got. And so you see, to love God fully in return to his love poured out for us, this is our human part in this equation. 
This is what we must do in order to claim this as our own. And so this morning, allow me to ask you. It's a simple question. Do you love God? Do you love God? Can you honestly say this morning that that you have a deep and steadfast and passionate love towards your Creator? Do you love Him? Now, just to be clear, in asking this question, I'm not asking for you to respond to me. Uh, I don't need you to convince me of whether or not you love God. It, it doesn't even matter if you could convince me. It doesn't matter whether your, your answer is just like emphatic and, and just, yes, I love God with all I've got, and you just really convince me. Or if you give me a very subdued, yes, I love God. Either way, it, it doesn't matter how persuasive you are to me, because it's, it's not me you have to persuade of your love for God. For no matter what, it is God himself who knows our hearts. It is God our, himself who knows what is truly within us, what is truly within our souls, within our minds, whether or not there is love there for him. And so God who knows our hearts, he is the one who sees the degree and the depths of which we truly love him. And so this morning as you're pondering this question, do I love God and, and do I love him as I ought? Do I love him with this everything you've got attitude, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or is there a certain anemia there? Is there a certain lack? Is there a certain just indifference? And if, and if that is the case, and you, and you find even within yourself right now, that, that your first love that once burned brightly is, is growing cold, and there's maybe some embers just glowing there. That as we've entered this season of Lent, and as we consider what Christ has done for us, that's where we need to go to reignite that passion and that love for the Lord, is spend some time at the cross. Remember all that Christ has done for us, his blood spilled on our behalf, taking the iniquity and our sin upon his own shoulders, being broken so that we could be healed. And just spend some time there and you will quickly find your love for the Lord reignited, refueled, and beginning to burn brightly once more. Because remember, we love him because he first loved us. And when we consider the depths at which he has gone to show us that love, to extend us that love, it just fuels that desire that, yes, we will love him in return with all that we have. And so now this is our part in the equation. Do we love God? And if we do, we can claim it as our own. We can trust by faith that he is working all things for our good. And now we proceed to the second part of this equation, which returns to God's work in calling us unto himself. Paul continues to say the promise is for those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, in this statement, Paul quickly is shifting gears and diving us headlong into one of the most mysterious and challenging to comprehend aspects of God's salvation that you will find anywhere in Scripture. Now, if, if you just want to sit in the last verse there and, and ponder God's, God's care for us, it's a wonderful place to go, but we're going right ahead to where Paul's going, and we're, we're going to go into this challenging subject of God's calling foreknowledge, and predestination of his children. Verses 29 to 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now within these crisp 46 words resides one of the greatest mysteries that has been studied, debated, and argued about within the church ever since they were written. And I suppose that debate will continue right up until the day that Jesus returns and settles it once and for all. But before we draw any conclusions, let's take a closer look at Paul's teaching here. The first thing he would draw our attention to is that God foreknew us. He foreknew us. This is linking back to his providence to see before. And now he's saying he not only sees before, but he knows before. And this this word foreknow or foreknew comes from the Greek word prognostikos. prognostikos. Now, it's also where the English word prognosis or prognosticator comes from. And so to prognosticate is something that uh, happens every time you check the weather right? Meteorologists are prognosticating on the weather. They are trying to give us, based upon their limited knowledge, uh, some idea of what the weather is going to do tomorrow and, you know, three days from now and five days from now. However, we know that how often uh, they're correct is, you know, maybe 50-50. You know, they like to put percentages on it, but but at the end of the day, they're prognosticating, but we know when we check the weather, it's not a guarantee. It's not a sure thing. At the very best, they are educated guesses. Now, when God prognosticates, it's not like the weatherman. Because the weatherman is making his prognosis based upon limited knowledge. What is at his disposal based on historical records and models and and, and algorithms, and they're trying to put it all together. But at the end of the day, it's an educated guess. God, on the other hand, when he prognosticates, when he foreknows, he is doing it not with limited knowledge, but with perfect knowledge. There's no gaps in God's knowledge. There's there's no places in his understanding or in his wisdom where he's like, yeah, I, I, I don't know about that. God knows about everything. There is no gaps. There is no limit. His knowledge is perfect. Therefore, what God prognosticates, what he foreknows, always happens and is always right. It is 100%. When he gives a forecast, it is 100% and it will always be 100%. Now we got to ask the question, how far back does God's perfect knowledge extend? How far back did he foreknow us? Well, if we go elsewhere in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, to them, Paul wrote on this same subject and he added a couple of extra details. He wrote to the Ephesians this, For he, that is referring to God, for he chose us in him, referring to Jesus is is the him, so for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. So there's the how far back it goes. Paul says, before the creation of the world. So before God said, let there be light, or filled the universe with countless stars, before even time began, God knew you. God knew you. And furthermore, he knew you and he 
chose you, Paul says, to be adopted as one of his children. Now, that alone, that incredible truth alone, ought to make us just stop and go, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. I was in the mind of the immortal, eternal creator God even before he set the foundations of the earth. I was in his mind. I was in his plan. He knew me, little old Danny Greening. (laughs) Whoa. It's incredible. Just stop there and ponder this. And this is the real emphasis of, of what Paul is getting at here. This great mystery ought to make us stop and just, whoa. I'm more important than I thought. If God knew about little old me and I was in his plan before the beginning. Before the beginning. And and even to think about this, that time as we know it, time as we know it, as it rules over our lives, time does not factor into God's perfect knowledge because he is outside of time. And in fact, he created time. Therefore, God's never in a hurry. God's never in a hurry because time doesn't dictate to him. God dictates to time. In Psalm 90, verse 2, this mystery is expounded upon by the psalmist, who states, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, a lot of people trip over this because it seems that if, if God foreknew who he would choose for adoption, then by default he was also deciding on those he would not be choosing for adoption. Furthermore, if, if God chose us, then we wonder, do we still have free will to choose him? And here a tension arises within us. Now, speaking about this concept of God's everlasting to everlasting, being outside of time, C.S. Lewis used the analogy of someone observing a parade route from high overhead. And from from their elevated vantage point, they are able to look down and to see both the beginning and the end of the parade route. They can see every twist and turn in between that the parade is going to take. And so in this sense, they are over it, they are outside of it, they can observe beginning and end simultaneously. However, those down in the parade, those on the floats, those marching, they can only see one turn at a time. They can't see the the beginning or the end simultaneously. They, They just can't. They're limited. And so within this parade route, at any time, they are free to leave the parade route. They could take a different turn if they so chose. But if they want to stay in the parade, they'll keep making the turns from beginning to end. And so the person high overhead can see both simultaneously. Now, of course, when we're talking about God, any analogy will will come to its limitations eventually and break down, and this one would as well. However, it helps us just begin wrapping our minds around this idea that God, from everlasting to everlasting, Alpha and Omega, sees beginning and end simultaneously. There is no tension for him to see both how he started things and where he will end things. Because he is over it, he is above it, he is sovereign. And so this is the crux of the great mystery that our finite minds, under time, within time, on the parade, we struggle with. And we ask the question, how can it be that even before God created the world, that he was able in his providential, omniscient sovereignty to have predestined those whom he has called to be adopted as his children, 
transformed into the image of Christ, while at the same time fully honoring mankind's free will to either believe him and be saved or reject him and be damned. Now, to our finite human minds, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility seem to be at odds with one another. For if God foreknew our choice, then it would seem that that the outcome is predetermined, and therefore our choice is not a real one, and we are but robots, in in a sense pre-programmed for one inevitable outcome that we're just going through the motions now. That's how it would seem on the one hand. However, on the other hand, if God does not foreknow our choice, and God's, you know, he's, he's waiting on pins and needles to see what my decision is going to be. If God does not foreknow my choice, then this word is not true, and God would not be all-knowing and all-powerful. And now to us, this seems to be just an unsolvable dilemma, wherein we feel somehow forced to choose between God's absolute sovereignty or man's responsibility. And on this specific subject and on this doctrine, there are two predominant theological positions that have been um, uh, established and taught on through the centuries. They've they've sort of been boiled down to two polar opposites and two terms that sort of uh, name the two camps. The first is Calvinism, and the other is Arminianism. Now, these are two systems of theology that attempt to resolve this dilemma and explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in our salvation. Now, there's a story told of a man who once attended a church conference. And this doctrine of of election and predestination was going to be the topic and it was going to be debated. And soon it became evidence as the debate began that there was a large divide between those who held a very strong Calvinistic view that salvation was completely predetermined by God's choice And man's free will had nothing to do with it. And then there were those who held a strong Armenian view that that emphasized man's need to exercise his free will to choose salvation. And so the man was torn between the two positions, and he listened carefully to the biblically-based arguments for both sides, but he just couldn't decide which one's right, which one is true. And finally, the instruction was given, we're going to do an exercise. And so we're going to divide up the room that everyone who sides with the Calvinist view go to this side of the room. And everyone who sides with the, with the uh, Arminian worldview, we're going to go to the other. And as the room quickly began to divide in two, and everyone picked one side of the room that they agreed with, there was the man stuck in the middle, still standing there and unable to decide. And finally, everyone just was looking at him. He was the center of attention, and someone called out to him, just make up your mind already. And so finally, hemming and hawing, he shuffled his way over to join the Calvinist side. Once he arrived there, someone asked him the question, Why did you come to this side? Well, I suppose, the man replied, because I chose to. To which the quick reply came, Oh, then you're on the wrong side. You don't choose to be here. Go over to the other side. And so with that, the man crossed the the room to the Armenian side, whereupon his arrival, he was asked the question, so why did you choose to come over to this side? To which the now bewildered man replied, oh, I had no choice in the matter. I was sent. To which he was then told, oh, you're on the wrong side. You have to choose to be here. Go over to the other side. And back and forth he went. And, And this humorous story 
helps demonstrate the reason this dilemma exists is because throughout Scripture, God's Word unabashedly, unashamedly, consistently teaches that both sides are true. Both are true. That God is fully omniscient and sovereign, meaning he is all-knowing and all-powerful. And, at the same time, man has a true free will and is fully responsible for his decision to either believe God or reject God. And so it is here that that we come to this, this middle point, this tension between the two. And we must recognize and accept that though we can't fully understand how this all works. Remember, we're within time. We're still on the parade route. Our our understanding is finite. It is limited. But though there is tension within our minds, rest assured, there is not tension within God's mind. Though we cannot fully understand this mystery, we can rest assured there is no mystery to God. He fully understands in his complete sovereign wisdom how he foreknows, pre-chooses, and predestines, while at the same time we have a real and true choice. We are not robots just going through the motions. Because God is going to hold us accountable by how we choose. And he would not be a just God if, if he had just created us for damnation or salvation. He allows us to choose, and we will bear the full responsibility of that choice. In 2 Peter chapter uh, 3 verse 9, we read a further confirmation of this. And there Peter wrote, God is patient with us, not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so here we see the heart desire of God, that he truly desires that everyone would be saved, that everyone would repent. And so he waits patiently, and he gives as much opportunity as is possible for each one of us to come to a decision. Will we believe in him? Will we receive his salvation? Or will we reject and turn away? And either way, he will allow us to bear the consequences of our choice. And on this, Dr. Roy L. Lauren, in his excellent commentary on Romans, writes, In the thought of predestination, there is no thought of some arbitrary predirt predetermination of men to heaven or to hell. Here is a sacred mystery which encompasses both God's choice of us and our choice of God. I love that line. It encompasses both God's choice of us and our choice of God. Where the sovereignty of God ends and the freedom of the human will begins, we cannot tell. But both the divine choice and the human choice are found here. And I agree with Dr. Lauren's assessment that indeed there is a tension within this mystery that we simply cannot fully grasp, but that by faith we can trust that God who understands, he is good, he is desiring that no one should be damned, that all should come to salvation, and that within him there is no tension. The mystery is not a mystery, and we can trust him with it. And for me, by faith, that is enough. And so, my friends, today, as our sovereign God has providentially and lovingly chosen us, may we each exercise our free will to choose him and love him in return. Furthermore, may we marvel in the grand plan of our sovereign God who has called us, chosen us, adopted us, justified us, is sanctifying us, 
and will yet glorify us for our eternal good and his eternal glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled this morning. Humbled that you are bigger than we ever thought you were. You are wiser than we ever could imagine. Your knowledge extends before time began and and after time ends. There are no gaps. There are no limits. And so, Father, as we come to this, this mystery of your salvation, how you have given each one of us a choice, for you or against you, and yet you and your sovereign wisdom and your providence have foreknown it. We wrestle with this, Father. How could this be? And yet you know, and so by faith, Father, we trust you. And we thank you that by faith today we can come to you, having exercised our free will to receive your salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we thank you that by your spirit you have given us assurance that we have indeed been adopted as your children and are in your family. And so, Father, we pray today that we would leave here marveling in who you are, your incredible plan of salvation, and the wonderful truth that by faith we are adopted as your children, that before time began we were in your mind, part of your plan, and that we will be with you in glory forever. And so, Father, today I also pray, if there's anyone listening who realizes that even now their love for you is not there, that they have not yet chosen to respond to the love that you have poured out for them through Calvary, through the sacrifice of Christ, that even now by your Spirit, would you help them have the freedom to say yes to you, to choose you by faith. And so we ask for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.